Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State at the Embassy of Israel in London. I was given generous time with Ambassador Mark Regev in his office suite looking out on Palace Green in London's Kensington. It's an interview that took little organization for such an eminent guest. No bureaucratic delays, but for one request, we had to put it on hold until after the UK general election. The ambassador, I was told, wouldn't be drawn on UK political commentary before polling day, just as well as the world looks considerably different post-Boris Johnson's victory. Mark Regev has been in post since April 2016. Prior to that, he was the chief spokesman for the Prime Minister of Israel, a position he held for eight years. He joined Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1990, serving as Deputy Chief of Mission at the Consulate General in Hong Kong and spokesman at the Israeli Embassy in Beijing. He also served as spokesman at the Embassy in D.C., and he was the spokesman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Jerusalem from 2004 to 2007. He also served as a combat soldier in the Nahal Brigade in the IDF. Originally from Melbourne, Australia, Mark Freiburg, as he was back then, moved to Israel as a 22-year-old. No significant family or contacts. His progress to ambassador shows how flat Israeli society is. This is one of a number of Israeli-related episodes in the series of Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Scroll down to find biographer of Lord Balfour and the historian of the decades leading up to the formation of the State of Israel, Lord Leslie Turnberg. That's episode 13. And a life in Shin Bet with its former chief, Yaakov Perry. That's episode 10. So, here's Ambassador Regev, and we started by unpacking that Australian background. Well, I have to fix the way I look as well, then. <laughs> it's not a competition. Ambassador Regev, thank you very much for your time and agreeing to the interview today here on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. I'm happy to be with you, sir. Now, your own background, which is very interesting, I think, to the Anglo-Saxon-speaking world of Jewry, is that you're an Australian. Correct. I was born in Melbourne, Australia, in 1960. Uh, my father was not born in Australia. He was a, what they call in Australia, a post-war refugee. He was a survivor of the Holocaust, originally born in Germany. My mother's family, uh, she was born in Australia. They were Polish Jews who were lucky enough, smart enough uh, to get out in the 1920s. And they, uh, they arrived in Australia, I think, in the last year of that decade. And uh, I remember my grandmother always saying that saved the family had they stayed in Poland. Their fate would have been uh, the fate of most Polish Jews, which was not good. And how did they pick Australia? Do you know the family story? So I know it on, on both sides. Uh, on my mother's side, my grandfather was on a train some going from Poland to Germany where he was studying engineering and uh, things were pretty glim for Jews in Poland in the 1920s and uh, he read an article in a magazine that Australia is the country of the future on the other side on the German side of the family uh, I think after the Holocaust people say well what's the furthest place away from Europe And I think Australia qualified. <laughs> Freiburg was the family name uh, uh, going back generations, uh, German name. I had this thing at the age of, I must have been like uh, 21. I had, uh, I said, these people tried to kill us. Um, do I really want a German name for the rest of my life? 
retrospectively now I know I made a mistake because I I very he never said anything to me but I offended my father very greatly but at the time at the age of 21 22 when I did it I was convinced that this was the right thing to do I'm aware of uh, how Ashkenazim took on the name of the town where they came from and of course a lot of the early Zionists took their Ashkenazi names and totally uh, Hebraized it. Correct. David Ben Gurion is probably the prime example. Our first prime Yitzhak minister. Shamir. Also. Menachem Begin. Correct. Uh, having said that, though, I suppose it was it it, it was part of uh, me becoming an Israeli. Though part of what you said isn't correct because Freiburg, the place in Germany, is URG, and my family was always ERG. So I'm not sure it was connected to that physical location in Germany. Look, when you uh, Hebrewize a name, there are different ways of doing it. So Freiburg is, in English, it's free, and Berg is mountain. Mm -hmm. So uh, I could have taken the Hebrew equivalence and played with that, and I did, and nothing successful came out. But I was going out at the time with a woman who was studying literature at the Hebrew University, and she said you can also do it by playing with the letters. So Freiburg in Hebrew is Pei, Resh, Beit, Gimel, and you can play with the letters, and Regev came out very nicely. Well, I think it's, uh, it, it was an intriguing name when I first came across you all those years ago. Uh, I'm glad to ask this question all these years later. Now, being an Anglo-Saxon speaker is a real asset to Israel in the modern media world. To explain Israel across borders to billions of people whose language is it's their mother tongue or their second language is a huge asset and something, if I might say, that has been quite a glaring omission from Israel's diplomatic mission um, in early years of the Jewish state. So I think if you look at the people who have held the position that I hold now, uh, we've had some English speakers, some native-born English speakers, and, uh, and those Israelis who've held, held the role have also had mother tongue English. Ron Prosor had... Uh, Still has, of course. Great English. He is the uh, son of a diplomat himself, and as a result, he went to school abroad and so forth. But you're right. I think uh, the ability to speak English at mother tongue level is a crucial element if you want to successfully make the case for Israel in international audiences. It is a prerequisite, but in itself, it's not enough. Um, um, like I'd, I'd sometimes meet in my previous job in Israel when I was the spokesman for the prime minister. I used to meet uh, young immigrants uh, with mother tongue English, and they'd say, Mark, I'd like a job like yours. How do I get it? Right? And I would explain to them, so good English is important, but it's, as I say, it's a necessary prerequisite, but it's not in itself enough. You have to know the issues backwards. Uh, you have to read what, everything that is relevant. You have to know the politics. You have to know the history. You have to understand the issues. Um, uh, I think that is, is, is just as important if not more important than having a strong command of the language. Because in my early teens, I used to despair at some of the Israeli politicians who were fairly brusque in their approach and even their attire to media interviews with the BBC and others. And I don't think that really helped. So this new generation, I think led by the Prime Minister himself, who speaks in, I, I think the best way to describe it is fluent American. Well, first of all, he, the, the current Prime Minister did grow up in... Uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. Uh, his father was uh, a visiting professor, and he 
he, he grew up there, again, returning to Israel to do his army service. He has uh, two mother tongue languages. He had both Hebrew and English, which is a m- marvelous advantage to have. Um, but I think to be overcritical of the founding generation, because that founding generation includes people like Abbe Evan, who was an amazing spokesman for Israel, a very articulate. Uh, people say that his speeches go down in history as some of the most powerful speeches in English in the 20th century. Thousands of years ago, a people, a land and a language came together in Israel's birth and the course of man's life and thought was lifted to a new point of elevation. Then for centuries, this pattern was split asunder. The people, the land and the language were separated and tragedy and danger befell them all. Separated each from the other, none of these three achieved the creative potency which they each knew when they lived together. What is modern Israel except the reunion of this people, land and language, in a sublime fulfillment of history's cycle? A bridge thrown across the gulf of continents and generations to symbolize the unity of all historic experience. Many people will know you from your competitive interviews with Jon Snow during the Gaza offences, being the media spokesman for the Prime Minister, a hugely different communications brief to that of being an ambassador. I was arrested by that idea that when you became the ambassador, it was a completely different communications brief, almost a different personality. So being a spokesman, I had responsibility over specific areas and as ambassador you have a much more general responsibility as spokesman my job was to make sure that the people in international audiences could understand Israeli government behavior, Israeli government policy and so forth and so that was done through communications as ambassador that's part of your job as well but uh, you have many other facets the economic relationship, cultural ties, uh, government-to-government discussions. Um, obviously, as ambassador, I'm still the public face for Israel. Uh, I will do interviews, I will give talks, I will brief and so forth. But uh, uh, I'm also doing things as ambassador that were not part of my portfolio when I was the government spokesperson. It's a more broad range of, of, of jobs. Have there been moments, perhaps, uh, in your elevation to ambassador where some of the diplomatic language has been frustrating because some of the communication has to be a bit more direct? I think uh, there's, on that side of things, there's more in common. There's more uh, uh, continuity. Because as government spokesman, you also have to be very, very careful with what you say because you're speaking for the government. And therefore, every word has to be measured carefully. So I'm not sure on that on th- that level there was so much change. Ambassador, let's move on to Donald Trump's much-heralded deal of the century. Uh, Jared Kushner and Donald Trump, together with many other people, drafting a 181-page document, which looks to many people like pushing ahead to a new settlement beyond war and peace to the concept of perhaps a divorce from the Palestinians, the idea that they've said no for so long to many, many peace proposals. So this is a way of forcing them to the table with the new realities of Israel's relationship with the wider Arab world. 
So the first thing that needs to be said is you saw that significant players in the Arab world were open to having discussions. Uh, you had three Arab governments in the White House when the peace plan was offered. And you have an Israeli government that's willing to pick up the ball, an Israeli government that says, we accept these proposals as a basis for talks. Now, the Palestinian side so far has closed the door. They have rejected these proposals, which is a mistake. No one is asking the Palestinians to accept a fait accompli. We're willing for talks. Um, uh, we're willing to hear what the Palestinians have to say. But the only way we're ever going to solve problems is through negotiations. And I think the Palestinians are making a huge mistake from their own perspective by not engaging, by refusing to talk. They're not going to solve anything by not talking. That's for sure. Uh, in many ways, unfortunately, the Palestinians in this sort of rejectionist position are repeating the mistakes of the past. We will celebrate this year 72 years to an independent Israel. And Israel's will, Israelis will celebrate in a very authentic uh, way. It's a very spontaneous day of celebration in Israel where people get together with families and friends, they barbecue, they go to parties. It really is a, a, a very authentic national holiday. And as we celebrate, the Palestinians commemorate what they call, in Arabic, they call it the Nakba. They call it their catastrophe. Uh, we celebrate and they, they, they mourn, at least officially. And one has to ask the following question that needs to be asked. Why is it that the Palestinians are not celebrating 72 years to an independent Palestinian state? Because the truth is, the UN proposal upon which Israel was founded was a partition proposal that said two states. And Israelis embraced the 1947 partition proposal of the United Nations. Uh, in fact, they danced in the streets when it became public, uh, when we heard it on the radio. The United Nations General Assembly, which helped to create the State of Israel, now elects her a member nation. Assembly President Ebert announces... ...formally declare Israel admitted to membership in the United Nations. Although Britain abstained from voting, congratulations are showered on Israel's Foreign Minister Moshe Sharet from all the delegates. The young republic, born of war, now joins the Council of Peace. The blue and white star of David is added to the flags of the 58 other member states. Simultaneously with her admission to UNO, Tel Aviv, capital of Israel, celebrates the first anniversary of the state's independence. Crowds are so big that a giant parade has to be cancelled. In synagogues throughout the land, thousands of worshippers attend Thanksgiving services. The day is declared an official holiday, and in Jerusalem, parades take place as scheduled. The Palestinian side rejected us. One has to ask Palestinians, Seriously, why is it that you're not celebrating 72 years to an independent Palestinian state? We prevented that. On the contrary, it's time I think Palestinians looked at their own leadership, at its own rejectionist behavior that has closed doors, prevented opportunities, and ask itself not only from a historical perspective did we, did we make some serious mistakes, but are you repeating those mistakes today? Because that would be a tragedy for peace, that would be a tragedy for the Palestinians themselves. I was with Anthony Scaramucci last night, the one-time Donald Trump communications director 
And he talked about the Palestinian leadership being such a failure that they were orphans and that he warned against the idea that Israel should force this uh, deal upon uh, a group which really doesn't have effective leadership and that some kind of reliable partnership on the Palestinian side really, really needs to be created. So I can't do it for them. But there's no doubt that the Palestinians have have raised themselves questions about their own leadership because Palestinian leadership has not been able to deliver for the Palestinians and, and, and that's, that's a tragedy. Ultimately, there were numerous points in, in the history of the conflict where we could have moved forward in peace. And at every occasion, Palestinian leadership closed the door. I can only hope that the Palestinians will see what's going on in the rest of the Arab world. They'll see more and more Arab states talking to Israel, recognizing Israel, understanding that Israel is a part of the region. And that the Palestinians will see that like many of their Arab brothers and sisters, Israel does not have to be an enemy. And when you look to the Labour Party conference in this country, they use a whole session to wave an immeasurable amount of Palestinian lanyards, which to me, as an Ashkenazi Jew here, someone whose grandparents fled here after Kristallnacht in 1939, it looks something extremely sinister. Are the Palestinians in danger of just becoming a vehicle for anti-Semitism? There's no doubt that for many anti-Semites, the Palestinian issue is something that they really like to to stick their teeth into. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. There was even some research done here in London by the uh, Jewish Policy Research Group, JPR, and they actually uh, looked at people who were involved in anti-Israel activism, and they discovered a direct correlation between anti-Israel activism and anti-Jewish racism. A direct correlation. They they discovered that if someone is, let's say, a moderate anti-Israel activist, you can show statistically that there's more likely than not that that person is a moderate anti-Semite. And if someone is a hardcore, gung-ho, militant anti-Israel activist, uh, chances are, statistically, that that person is also a gung-ho, militant anti-Semite. And so there's no doubt that there is a correlation. Statistically, we've seen that uh, uh, very clearly. But it's not only the statistical relationship which is clear. Substantively, uh, if you say, I support downtrodden people, I support persecuted people, I support their right to national self-determination, and you say, that's a principle, but I apply it to everyone except the Jewish people. They have no right to national self-determination. I deny that they have been persecuted historically. Yes, that they, they don't need independence and sovereignty in their homeland. Then you have to ask, why are you holding the Jewish people to a standard that you don't hold other people? And that contradiction has to be based on some unusual attitude towards Jews. If, let's say, there's an, a university academic who's, who's called for a boycott of, of Israel but never called for a boycott of any of the Middle East's many autocracies, 
and there are quite a few, yes. In other words, you've called for a, 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 a boycott of uh, the Middle East's only democracy, and you've never called for a boycott of not of Assad's Syria or Gaddafi's Libya or the Ayatollahs in Iran. Yes, it's only Israel. You have to ask the following question is, what is it about the Jewish state that you find so morally offensive? And we have to find new terms to identify a new form of anti-Semitism, don't we? I mean, there is one term which is intersectional uh, racism, that you see groups of, I don't know, revolutionaries might be the words, in issues of LGBT, etc. So not enough that uh, you're a gay person. You could be the wrong kind of gay person. You can be an Israeli gay person uh, who uh, they allege produce uh, you know, terrible breaches of human rights, pinkwashing, and various other things. These are real challenges uh, to people who may not be across these issues of anti-Semitism and parrot out uh, anti-Semitic words unbeknown to them. Look, it's very comfortable and convenient for some to believe that anti-Semites are only the radical right, that they're the only the uneducated, unwashed um, uh, uh, those who, who just haven't had a chance to know better. Anti-Semitism as a disease successfully mutates and has reached intellectuals. Uh, it has reached people on the progressive side of politics. If for the right-wing anti-Semite, the Jew is, is the globalist who seeks to undermine national sovereignty, let's be clear for people... On the radical left, all too often the Jew is the Rothschild, is the exploiter, the international capitalist, yes. Uh, to say that anti-Semitism is only on the, the skinhead with the tattoos, the uncouth, uneducated, that is a comfortable myth. One has to look just at history. Dostoevsky was a great Russian writer. No one would deny his contribution to civilization, but he was anti-Semitic. Voltaire, the, the French philosopher, very important in his the Enlightenment and, and, and creating the intellectual milieu that could lead to the French Revolution, anti-Semitic. So to say someone can be intellectual, someone can be cultured, therefore they can't be anti-Semitic, that unfortunately is just not factual, that's not true. Uh, Proudhon, one of the fathers of French socialism, anti-Semitic. Karl Marx himself has an essay called On the Jewish Question in which Karl Marx of Jewish heritage writes about Judaism being hucksterism, mm -hmm. the worst elements of capitalism. So I think people uh, on the left who think they must be immune to this virus because it's, it's not their purview, it's, not their, it's, it, it's only on the other side, that is historically incorrect. And it's a cop-out for them to deny that. And when you take historical events like the French Revolution and you suddenly shine a 21st century light upon them, suddenly you can see the intellectual argument which says that actually the French Revolution was, in t was totally incongruous to perhaps the formation of Israel, that indeed it is a straight line from anti-Semitism. No wonder, because the French Revolution in itself looks like something different from the history books that perhaps we were taught about the French Revolution growing up. I, uh, I remember reading a book many years ago by Hebrew University professor Shlomo Avineri 
who's a renowned internationally as a political scientist, and it's called The Origins of Zionism, or The Making of Modern Zionism. And he writes that what is actually the Zionist movement all about, it is the, it's the uh, nexus, the, the synthesis between uh, Jews and the modern world. The idea that Jews would have national independence and freedom in their homeland is a function of the ideas of the modern world, of the Enlightenment, and so forth. They took ideas that were always in Judaism and turned them into something that was uh, practical and modern. Because if people thought that the French Revolution and the birth of, of, of democracy would somehow give Jews equality and end in persecution of Jews, that obviously wasn't, wasn't the case. Uh, worth reading that book. I'm delighted to tell you that Shlomo Avineri is my cousin. So I, I, I praised him without knowing that. <laughs> Isn't that great? So in the tradition of great Zionists, he also changed his name Correct. to become uh, an Israeli. Um, can we talk about Brexit? Uh, because Israel was quick off the mark with a trade deal with the UK. Can you unpack how our trade deal between two sovereign states with just a small stretch of water, whereupon you can see the European Union over the sea, came together so fast? So Israel has a good trade relationship with the United Kingdom, and over the last few years, every year we've seen it increase. I haven't seen the precise numbers yet for 2019, but in all the previous years, every year has been a new record year in trade. We're up to about nine billion pounds in bilateral trade, which is significant and constantly growing. That's a good thing. Now, that trade happens under the framework up until now with Britain being a member of the European Union. Now that Britain is leaving the European Union, has left the European Union, uh, we have to make sure we can continue to trade. So uh, we were one of the first off the mark to finalize and sign a trade deal with Britain to make sure that when, when the transition period is over, we are ready to continue to see trade grow. People don't know it. But you are, Britain is the largest market for Israeli exports in Europe. We sell more to Britain than we do to France or Italy or Germany. You are our third largest export market on the planet after the United States and China. And we are important trading partners. Uh, and, and as the numbers keep going up, uh, more so over the years. But just as the trade relationship is is strong, we're seeing uh, in parallel over the last few years a, 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 an upgrading of the security relationship between our two democracies. I was at uh, an RAF base in northern England last year, uh, and I was there because there was a, a, a group of Israeli Air Force pilots who were here in Britain to train with the RAF in the first joint exercise of its type in British skies. We've also been training with the RAF in the Eastern Mediterranean. Britain has bases in Cyprus, and we've been training with British pilots there as well. And when we are collaborating together in security and defense uh, in counterterrorism, the bottom line is this, that we are making the peoples of both our democracies safer and more secure. And the the training and the joint exercises that our two air forces conduct together, that's just one manifestation of a, of a defense relationship which is also very, very robust. 
And within days, we have seen very similar incidents, Jerusalem and Streatham. We have seen um, Islamic terrorism on our streets. Both sets of peoples need to be belligerent to it at any time at all. So as Britain becomes an independent state once again, Israel and its relationship with the world becomes a necessity. Look, I have no doubt that the same extremists who threaten Israel also threaten the United Kingdom. And that by working together closely, by our robust cooperation, we are making the peoples of both our countries safer. I obviously, without going into confidential material, I can assure you and our listeners that those relationships between, let's say, the counter-terrorist agencies of Israel and the United Kingdom are very, very strong. I'm very pleased to hear it. I was in Israel until Monday night, Mark, examining the computational biology business at close quarters, a business called Cytoreason, a new generation of young Israelis born in Israel, children of Israelis, possibly even grandchildren of Israelis, all PhDs creating world-class medical miracles. Tel Aviv is growing again. There are two old cities now. There's the white city, and there's the, the city that was built around it, which has now become something of a historical project because, of course, the skyscrapers are now further out. Look, Israel is, is, is going through a period of great success. The Israeli economy has, over the last decade, consistently been one of the fastest-growing economies in the developed world. There's a new prosperity in Israel, which is very exciting for Israelis. When we received our independence from the British in 1948, our GDP per capita was that of our neighbors. We were a poor, undeveloped agricultural economy. Today, Israel is a strong, vibrant, high-tech economy. Our GDP per capita is about the same as Britain's today. Uh, We're a smaller country. We're only 9 million people, but we have a new prosperity because primarily of technology. Israel has become a a global epicenter for innovation, for technological development. And it's very exciting for Israelis because um, it it shows that in in this new modern 21st century, Israel has all the uh, reasons to succeed and to continue to succeed. I remember as a teenager in the 1970s when when there was the Arab world embargo against countries that were friendly to Israel. And even here in the United Kingdom, which was always friendly, there was a situation in the 1973 Yom Kippur War where the Americans uh, were resupplying us, uh, just as the Soviets were resupplying the Arabs, and the British government took a decision that the American planes couldn't refuel here on their way to Israel to bring supplies to us. And that was because, uh, retrospectively, the British were concerned about the Arab oil embargo. And I remember as a young a young man thinking the, the Arab world has this huge geostrategic advantage over us because they can use their oil resources in a very effective way politically. They can galvanize support for their positions. So what is it now, 35, 40 years later? Longer. First of all, Israel has made peace with many of those Arab countries. We've fought a war with Egypt in 1973. We now have a peace treaty with Egypt. With other Arab countries, we've got 
relations, Arab countries that used to see us as an enemy no longer do so. We, they talk to us. We're talking today to more Arab countries than ever before in the history of Israel. So that's the first piece of good news. But the second piece for Israel is that maybe in the 21st century, we have the oil. Now, we don't have the oil fields like there are in other parts of the Middle East. But when I say oil, when I say metaphoric oil, Israel is producing the technological developments that the planet needs. Israel is producing the innovation that industry and commerce need to, to continue to grow. And I see this with the, you know, our new relations with countries in Asia, with, with China, Japan, Korea, India. All these relations are very robust and they're, and they're based on, I think, understanding increasingly across the planet that Israel has so much to give and that by having good relations with Israel, your economy gets to enjoy the fruits of a very beneficial relationship. Uh, there's amazing interest in the Israeli tech scene. When I go to the city here in London, everyone's talking about Israeli technology and, and, and investment and, and venture capital and so forth. It's very optimistic for Israelis, young Israelis. Everyone thinks that they can create the future ways, yes? That they will create a product or an, a concept that will be bought by a great multinational company and, 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 and it's a very entrepreneurial and very dynamic marketplace. And for the many uh, Jews in Western countries, advanced economies like France, like the UK, like Australia, South Africa, Brazil, we can go around the world, Russia as well, they'll be looking at the GDPs in their country, the possible living standards which might be falling, electoral difficulties, possibly even the growth of anti-Semitism, looking to Israel and thinking, Aliyah for the first time, even in advanced years, moving to Israel in their career years, perhaps in their 40s and 50s. But when one has to compete with the likes of this new generation of educated and upwardly mobile Israeli you've talked about, and those like you who served as a combat soldier in the IDF, what do you say to people like that? Like, I can't possibly learn the language to the level that I need. Leaving my own country, my career, and making that huge step to Israel, just like you did in your early 20s. So first of all, I think... I mean, I, uh, I immigrated to Israel at the age of 22. And I, uh, I, I mean, I had not much family there and I uh, didn't have any relationships. I wasn't well connected. Or, and I've achieved to become the Israeli ambassador in the United Kingdom. That's, that's, I think that says something about Israel and the lack of glass ceilings so forth in my country. Uh, but more than that, you know, every year there, there's this happiness index that comes out of the United Nations. And Israelis, with all our challenges, Israelis, according to that index, are one of the happiest people on the, on, on the planet. We're more happy than Italians, than Germans, than French, than Americans, than Canadians, if I'm not mistaken. No, I'm not sure about Canadians. We're definitely more happy than Brits. <laughs> and so... As you said, GDP per capita is rising in Israel too. So if in the past uh, a, a new immigrant, an Olechadash from a Western country, would go to Israel for ideological reasons but would say, well, I know I won't be able to have the same standard of living I would have had back home, that's not necessarily true anymore. Uh, I know in my own family, my sister-in-law moved to Canada in the, uh, at the turn of the century 
and her son finished school there and went to university in Canada and graduated as an engineer and uh, put out his curriculum vitae, his resume, to try to get jobs when he graduated. Uh, made a few interesting offers in Canada. He came to Israel to visit his grandmother, and my wife, who's a, an old-fashioned Zionist, took his CV and made some changes of it and made a Hebrew copy as well and sent it out. He was offered a better first out-of-university job in Israel from the point of view of interest in the job and salary than he would have in Canada. And so the idea Israel is going places. Israel is very exciting. One One can in Israel, to someone who wants to move there, not just fulfill a vision, yes, but also... I think to have a very full and, and, and complete life, I think I'm an example of that. I asked the same question of Professor Shai Shen Or of Saito Reason, a PhD, and he said the door was open to you. Um, it's that kind of country and that I should come. So I've now had that verified, which is great. Now, uh, finally, you served as spokesman at the embassy in Washington as well before the Prime Minister's office, and between 2004 and 2007... I believe you're coming to the end of your uh, mission here at the uh, embassy here in the UK. What is next for Ambassador Regev? I don't know. I don't know. Um, But in the diplomatic life, you often don't know in advance. Uh, I only knew I was going to come to the United Kingdom a month before it happened, yes? Uh, Before the government made it official. These things are obviously dynamic and fluid. And some people would find that very difficult not to know what job they'd have a year from now, two years from now. But for me, that's part of the course. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure I don't have to worry. Um, I have to tell you that sometimes when people read the newspapers or watch the news on television, and they can be very worried about Israel's future. And, of course, Israel faces challenges. Israel faces some very uh, difficult challenges. Iran is a serious challenge. And and you can't understate it. Iran is a real threat to to the region, to Israel. Syria is a problem. Lebanon, Hezbollah is a problem. Gaza is a problem. uh, We have just had this week rockets from Gaza into southern Israel. Hezbollah in Lebanon is stockpiling tens of thousands of rockets. Syria, as we said, Syria is a huge problem. And behind everything, Iran. But despite those obvious challenges, I remain very optimistic and confident that Israel will continue to thrive and succeed and go from strength to strength. One and we spoke about this, the new relations with the Arab countries. In the past, when Israel sought friends and allies, we looked west to Europe and to North America. Today, we have friends and allies in the region. It's very exciting for Israel. It's a new situation, a new strategic reality that Arab countries who used to see us as an enemy today see us as a partner, even as an ally. More and more Arab countries having dialogue with Israel, understanding that that a strong relationship with Israel is good for them. And it is win-win. So that's the first reason I'm optimistic, and I expect our relation with the Arab world to get only stronger 
in the months and years to come. I mean, just last week, we had the first ever meeting between a leader of Israel and, and the leader of, a leader of Sudan. And there's just one manifestation, just one manifestation of countries uh, in the Arab world who we're talking to today. Um, you will recall that actually Sudan in many ways represented the, the epicenter of anti-Israel rejectionism. rejectionism. That was the famous cartoon de uh, uh, declaration by the Arab League in 1967, which said, no recognition, no negotiations, no peace. If Sudan is talking to Israel, that's a real change. The other reason I'm optimistic is what we spoke about also is the economy. Who would have thought that Israel would be this epicenter for global innovation? That the Israeli standard of living would be rising so rapidly, that our country would be so prosperous and be on a vector that Israel is uniquely equipped to succeed in the 21st century in the new global technological economy. So when the geopolitics is looking good and the momentum there is in the right direction and the economic situation is, is, is also fundamentally positive and also moving in a positive direction, I think we can all be hopeful and confident that in the decades to come, Israel will continue to thrive. Ambassador Mark Regev, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. With many thanks to Ohad Zemet, spokesperson at Israel's London Embassy, for coordinating and organising the interview time, to my photographer, Ink Monocle, also known as Stuart Mitchell, and, of course, to Ambassador Mark Regev for his characteristic frankness and measure in answering my questions so fulsomely. Check out the rest of Johnny Gould's Jewish State by subscribing and listening now.